0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Alexandra Helen-Nicholas. And Hayley Inch has returned as a special guest host to be with us on Plato's Cave tonight. Good evening, Haley. How are oh, you? Oh, little Hayley. cheery ghost
1: I am, just popping <laughs> up out of the blue. Nice to see you, Hayley. <laughs> oh, always a
0: pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming back on. And you've been on Triple R quite a bit recently. You've been <gasps> in my old stomping ground, in my old time slot.
1: Running around with the breakfasters for a couple of weeks, while Simone, the regular reviewer, was uh, uh, jaunting off in Europe, I believe. So that, that was a lot of fun. It seems to be the thing to do, this jaunting off in Europe. (laughs) It's right
0: now. If they're not jaunting off in Europe, they're doing what Josh does, and they're jaunting in the States. Well,
2: we're jaunting off in Brunswick, (laughs) goddammit. They can be the envy of us.
0: We're going to take a look at the French drama The Measure of a Man about the struggles of unemployment. And we will also be discussing Martin Scorsese's often overlooked 1985 surreal black comedy After Hours. But first, the BFG is the latest film by director Steven Spielberg. It's an adaptation of Roald Dahl's much-loved 1982 children's novel of the same name. And as a side note, the film adaptation was the final script by screenwriter Melissa Matheson, who died late last year. Matheson was best known for writing the scripts for The Black Stallion, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, The Indian in the Cupboard and Kundan. Now, the film version of the BFG follows and expands upon the original novel. It's about a young orphan girl named Sophie who is taken to giant country by the big friendly giant after she witnesses him on the streets of London. Unlike other giants, he does not eat children and prefers to spend his time capturing dreams. Actor Mark Rylance, who last appeared in Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, plays the BFG via the process of motion capture computer animation and a newcomer, Ruby Barnhill, plays Sophie... Where to start with this? First of all, I guess, what did you think of the the relationship between the BFG and and Sophie? You've got a very established Academy Award winning theatrical actor via CGI against a, a girl who was sort of one of those classic discovery stories. She was one of many who auditioned for the role. She's a complete unknown. I'll throw my hat in the ring. I thought their relationship was gorgeous.
2: I'm three for three with my girl films this last three weeks. Uh, We had Mustang, we had The Fits, and now we've got Sophie, we've got Ruby Barnhill. She's up there. She's one of them. She's one of my girls. Um, I just adored her performance. She just carries this film more than Rylance, more than Spielberg's direct, more than anything, more than the money and the effects. She owns this film. What a spectacular performance. I just... It's very, very strange for me to have an uncomplicated relationship with a Spielberg film, and um, this would be it for me, I think. I, I, I just adored her. Um, Rylance is great. I have to say probably one of my only... We, we can perhaps talk about this a bit more further after we've talked more, I guess, about the Roald Dahl-isms um, in this film. One of my few hesitations is was the actual CG. Rylance's performance was great, but the CG was a little bit uncanny valley for me, a little bit too hyper-realistic. It reminded me a lot of seeing uh, Ron Muek's work, the Australian hyper-realist artist. You know, the guy that does the really big people and they're kind yeah. of really super hyper-realistic. It, it just didn't really... They just felt a little unheimlich for the for the Freudians amongst <laughs> you. I, that was my only kind of compl- complaint, I think, is that the CG was almost too good.
0: I, I, yeah, I found, found it a little a,
2: unsettling.
0: I found the CG a little bit too... Like animation, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I, 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 was slightly disappointed in the cartoonish look of it, and but I, it occurred to me that may have been done deliberately for the target audience. Not because mm. these are big giants talking about eating children. Maybe they were deliberately made to look a bit unreal, not to freak out kids. Mm. But um, yeah, when you're heading into that uncanny valley territory, you're you're in a bit of trouble. And sure, there was a bit of that. I
2: think it will date very quickly, and just in terms of the CG,
0: all CG is going to date horribly, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yep. Mm. Yeah, I think. Um, it, but uh, I
2: think that's the weakness in this film is that it was almost a bit too a bit too ahead of itself I think it could have gone a bit more lo-fi and it might have been a little bit more I don't know it just it especially when in the scenes with them together that were quite close up the perspective seemed really off um, and that was when I really lost my kind of connection with what was going on in this film which was quite strong. It's very, very strange for me to say that about Spielberg. So. What
0: about you, Haley? Did you get a strong response oh, from this?
1: I think I'm going to be the slight downer here. And it's it's not that I think it was necessarily a bad film. It comes down to a personal perspective of the BFG it was one of my foundational texts as a child. It was a big, big one yeah. for me
0: as a kid too. Yeah, yeah,
1: probably around like six or seven when I was first getting to the point where I was reading full novels by myself and things like that. It was a... It affected me very, very deeply, and I also very much enjoyed... There was actually another animated version of the BFG made in 1989, uh, animated by uh, Cosgrove Hall, who are the British animators behind things like Danger Mouse and Count Duckula and things like that. Really? Highly, highly mm. delightful. It, it, it used to be on the ABC a lot, I'm particularly to to when you were on down. holiday. Oh, it's, it's on I I think YouTube. It's on, yeah, it's online. Uh, oh, okay. It's on the YouTube. <laughs> um, and... So I I had a very strong connection with this story and I did kind of go into it very excited to see what they would do and I just kind of felt the, the, the changes that were made very much hit me in places that I did not appreciate. There's things like there's suggestions that the BFG has taken other children before Sophie and they've been eaten by the giants and of course the, the one that is revealed to Sophie is, you know, he, he was a boy. Um, there's you know, far too much focus on the the giant, that like the, the the flesh-eating children-eating giants, which I totally understand. You've got Jermaine Clement. You totally want to spend a lot of time with Jermaine Clement. And Bill as Hader as, was in there too. But barely, you could barely tell which one was him yeah. which I thought was very unusual like Clement is very much the star of the Flesh Eating Giants and is given the most screen time which I totally understand because he was clearly having a very very good time with it but yeah there's there's a few dissonances between text and film which feel very Spielbergian to me that feel almost like they're just being put upon the text um, I also found like Ruby Barnhill she does do a really great performance but the the difference between book sophie and film sophie feels very quote-unquote strong female character and i found it i don't know the the attraction for sophie i think when you're a child reading it is that she is a very scared little girl who's who's on her own but she manages to do things herself you know while also being scared but you know not hectoring people and not yelling all the time and not correcting the bfg and Mm. things like that and i just found it very she didn't feel like my Sophie, and this is very much a personal, person personal yeah, side I have to, of things. I have to say, I kind of,
2: for me, when I think of adaptation and Roll Dale, I think about the, um, the, the, the discourse that went down with the Tim Burton. Willy Wonka adaptation um, where Willie, uh, Burton very much kind of presented it as a kind of reclamation that he was returning the text to the original book because the Gene Wilder version was such an atrocity and it was so unlike the book and that he was returning it to the original and I have to say that I think that in the spirit of the book the Burton was far 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 from the spirit of the book even though the the gene wilder version changes more it's certainly a very different story um just even in the look of wonka you know if you you kind of compare those books i think in terms of this a kind of spirit rather than a direct pay i mean i'm 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 skeptical of a lot of the language that's used in adaptation criticism more generally and i think that um you're absolutely right to frame that in terms of personal taste, especially when it is something that's so formative. Um,
1: Definitely. Like, there's there's a lot of stuff going on here where I probably can't really talk about. But yeah, the, I the mean, I, I didn't find others. any kind
2: of strongness at all to Sophie. I thought she was a really remarkable um, three-dimensional interesting character and I, I very much i mean very very different kinds of films but i am very happy to put her in my in my three for three of movies about girls of the last couple of weeks like i think that she's i'm not saying that this film is mustang <laughs> and i'm certainly not saying that this film is the fits but i think that in terms of having uh g- girls not teenagers and not children but but that kind of these girls in this kind of interesting liminal space of this sort of pre-pubic pre-pubic pre-puberty kind of age (laughs) i i think that she kind of um yeah, she kind of earned her stripes for me. I was really interested in, in, in her.
0: It is extraordinary that when we were talking about The Fits, you were saying how rare it was to see yeah, children, and the, and especially and girls at this row. age. We've got three um, in a row, which I, is I extraordinary, just, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I
2: feel maybe it's because I'm kind of in that headspace.
0: Yeah, I must have been, I've been um, looking out for it now as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it was just remarkable yeah. because that was exactly the conversation that we had about The Fits. And then the week, week after that, of course, we had Mustang, and these are films from very different kinds of cultures. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I, I was just going to jump in to say I, I reread the BFG right before seeing the film, and look, I I feel that you know. <laughs> I mean, the, the purpose of adaptation for me is to translate it to the screen and to make it more relevant to to the age. So I actually really liked a lot of the changes. I mean, I think the film toned down some of the viciousness of the Giants so that the book has got a lot of description of bones being found outside orphan windows and that kind of thing. But I like the detail that the BFG has been lonely and has had companions before and it's ended badly. And I liked 2016 Sophie. I also adored 1982 Sophie, but I thought the Sophie you got in this film was right for this film um so look i yes i i really enjoyed the changes and i am my big criticism was that the film felt a bit too padded out a a bit too extended i mean the novel is very simple It, it it just goes bang 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 it moves very quickly through plot points so they had to expand the film but um some of the sequences where they did expand the film were the highlights for me. So that the sequence in Dream Country yeah. just filled me with that amazing Spielbergian Whimsy. The, the, his use of light, I, I think it, he has a gorgeous way of using that kind of glowing light. It's very close encounters. We get that, just the use of music, the classic Spielberg face where people stare into the distance with a face full of awe, that all completely won me over. And the other thing that won me over in this film, and I was really frightened they were going to skip over it, was the scene with the Queen and all the farting. I was
2: going to bring that sequence up as well. They
0: took the fart humour to a whole new level in this film, which was glorious.
2: I I see a lot of children's films because I'm a spiritual infant, perhaps, I don't know. But I've mentioned this on the show before, I have a real bugbear with a lot of contemporary children's films. that have the wink. I mean, Pixar are very guilty of it. Uh, Disney, obviously, as well. But there's that wink to the parents. Like, oh, let's have the joke to the parents. Let's have the little Godfather reference for the parents. Let's let's chuck something in for the parents. Um, and it's like, no, you know what? Let just let a kids' film be a kids' film, or find a common ground. Don't be lazy. Don't don't patronize kids by excluding them from the experience like make you know there's a kind of democracy of experience here that you can actually frolic in and i had i I can't remember if i've ever had this experience watching a film in a cinema this scene that you're talking about thomas when they meet the queen and they're eating it's just it's just a very simple setup where the giant comes into a big banquet hall sophie and the queen are sitting at a table eating they kind of set him up at a big table to eat fart jokes ensue and the laughter in i was in a cinema it was a saturday morning in school holidays there everybody was laughing at the same level and Mm. it was just extraordinary because the the parents were laughing as much as the kids were laughing and everybody was laughing at the same thing in the same way and i it really was quite emotional it's like i i can't remember that happening in a I children's like, film. It I was... feel
1: like that's the complete opposite of the experience that I had, oh, where, no. I, where I watched it <laughs> in an evening session at an inner-city art house cinema where there were entirely adults in the audience, and when that scene happened, oh. it was deathly silent apart from the, the couple seated up the back who were very inebriated and they pissed themselves.
0: That sounds like so... my idea
2: of hell. I mean, it's maybe that's one of the reasons I liked it, it was because I did see it with a room full of ten-year-olds, who the movie's yeah. made for, and uh, and no, the the thing. Thing. I, I saw it at the
0: multiplex too. Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: like, I, I, I found it so interesting that for a yeah for a f- essentially a family film in 2016, there is no wink to the adults. Yeah. There is like I I would actually warn parents taking it, saying like there might actually not be much in this for you unless you really like Spielberg I the films. Opposite. To be honest, I, I,
2: I actually I'm I'm very much the anti-Spielberg one of the team. I think um I and mm. specifically because of his pollyannaism, um I find it very difficult. We did Bridge of Spies last year, and I think I was yes. the dissenting voice on that one. Because I'm, um, I'm very pro Spielberg. Yeah, and yep. I, think, I think Josh is uh, too. Certainly that film, I think I mm. was the kind of negative one. Um, yeah, I'm not... I'm not a, this is the closest I've come to kind of unambiguously really liking... This, this film. Was all... and, and it was the opposite of that i have to say like being in a room full of adults and children mm-hmm. um the adults were laughing as much as the children were i was by myself i didn't go with a child to see this which is a bit weird going to a film as an adult <laughs> by yourself you know, it was a sold-out session so i was like one seat kind of <laughs> being the <laughs> weirdo but i mean i was laughing everybody everybody was laughing but in the same way and there were families so you had you know kind of older kids you know sort of you know teenage kids with with younger brothers and sisters and everybody was laughing there it was a beautiful little moment of a kind of shared experience
0: i think when humor at this level is done right adults enjoy it because they regress is the wrong word but they, they have that feel, you remember they have that inner yeah. child feeling and that's
2: exactly what happened to me
0: so for me this was on a similar level to say the sean the sheep movie and to really
1: good comparison and to
0: paddington because I thought Paddington was also glorious. Oh,
1: Paddington's so much better than this. Paddington oh, I don't know. I, I, I think that. Oh, I hate, for me. To, I hate
0: mm-hmm. to rate them. Paddington is the high yeah. watermark for me in yep. terms of kids' Drawing cinema advice. The, the Sheep's last a really good years.
2: point of comparison too, because yeah, that's it's um, fun slapstick and it's Buster Keaton. Yes. I mean, it's just it's just a Buster Keaton film, yes. um, and that was that was actually that's a really good film to bring up because I remember that when I saw that, adults were laughing at the same things in the same way. There wasn't this kind of separation of children enjoy X where adults enjoy Y. Like, here's a joke for the kids and here's a joke for the adults. It was much warmer in the
1: experience of watching it. Bringing things quickly to adult issues, again, before we move on. um, Did anyone else find it very strange watching a film with such a pro-Britain outlook after Brexit? I think all films are going to be like that. Now, we were talking about that
2: last week with Independence Day, that it was very, very difficult to watch a film talking about how united the world is after Brexit. It's like it's not... And, yeah, you're right, like this, you know, this glorious Britain... Mm. and The queen is yeah. a figurehead. We, we who will we, save everything. We go to the
1: queen to help us, yeah. and she does. And the British army helps us and saves us. Yeah. And, and, and I think the mm. fact that this is
2: a this is a period piece that it is so nostalgic for this Britain that used to exist. Even the poverty in this is so it's such a lovely glossy Spielbergian kind of poverty. Mm. Um, it's certainly not Ken Loach realism by <laughs> any stretch. Although the Ken Loach doing BFG, can we get a Kickstarter? <laughs> I don't know what Triple R's policy on this is, but I would I would kickstart the shit out of. Ken and <laughs> Loach doing doing a Roald Dahl adaptation.
0: It'll just be a giant moping around going I'm really working class and poor, life's miserable (laughs) sell me some chips and some fags, love. Do what, leave it up? No. But
1: we clearly need to move on to the next segment and talk about French (laughs) social realism.
0: Speaking of that, yeah we are are going to be talking about a very different film that's a less (laughs) romanticised depiction of the working class. The Measure of a Man will be coming up very soon here on Plato's Cave. We've been talking about the BFG. I forgot to mention uh, both Spielberg and Roald Dahl are dyslexic, and I think both the book and the film have a bit of a sort of tip of the hat to the importance of communication is more important than actually getting all the words correct. And I think it's a lovely sentiment in both texts.
2: And Sophie is Sophie Dahl. He wrote it for his granddaughter.
0: I oh, did too. That's yeah, lovely. There I kept, we go. I
2: kept thinking when I was watching this, imagine being Sophie Dahl watching this as an adult. Like just beautiful. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three RR in Melbourne, Australia
0: you are listening to platos cave before we move on though we're just going to quickly acknowledge the passing of two actually kind of interesting um um, directors sort of both very famous for one or maybe two films um but they're very significant films the first one is michael cimino died very recently he um his career started strong with thunder bolt and lightfoot and then the deer hunter which is sort of one of the definitive films uh about the, the experience in America of being a, a, a young man going to the Vietnam War and coming back and then trying to integrate back into society. And it's about the way that damaged so many men and their their families. It's a complicated film. We can't go into all of it now, but it's significant. And, of course, he was also famous for then making Heaven's Gate, which was a a huge disaster and kind of almost destroyed the studio. Um, Although, curiously, Heaven's Gate has been reappraised. It got re-released again about ten years ago, a, a restored version, and that's the only version of it I've seen, and I think it's a glorious film. I'm glad that that film got a bit of love in the last decade before before Michael Cimino died. So we you know, Vale Michael Cimino. And also Robin Hardy recently died. The uh, the extraordinary director behind The Wicker Man is sort of the one film he's really known for. But my God, it's a hell of a film to be known for. Uh, Alex, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I'm saying this is one of the iconic key horror films.
2: It's so important in so many ways. Like aside from just being an amazing film, it's um it's quite I mean it's it's certainly one of the most famous and important British horror films. One of the most famous horror films set primarily in daytime, which I think is oh, it extraordinary. Is too, yeah. it's It's such a strange tone for I mean coming from a genre perspective, it's a really fascinating film. and it's I mean, it's a musical. Which is often, you know, a horror musical isn't a common thing either. It's so just a strange
0: focus. Really, sort of, yeah.
2: I was telling you guys be- before. Like, I, I, my anecdote, my connection with this film is that I got married to the Maypole song <laughs> from *The Wicker Man*. <laughs> I walked down the aisle to the Maypole song, which I think is romantic, but everyone else, including my beloved husband, think is weird.
1: <laughs> Three
0: triple. The Measure of a Man is the latest film by French filmmaker Stéphane, how are we saying it? Brizet? Uh, Brizet.
2: Brizet?
0: Brizet. Uh So Stefan Brizet uh, once again casts French actor Vincent Lindon in the lead role. Uh, Lindon, who won the Best Actor Award at last year's Cannes Film Festival for this film, plays Thierry, an unemployed middle-aged man trying to maintain his dignity while going through the very undignified process of looking for work and making ends meet in the meantime. The film's naturalistic style conveys Thierry's frustrations, boredom, worry and most importantly the way he's constantly on display to be judged and condescended to. As the film develops he is placed in a position to watch and judge others. Uh, the Measure of, of a Man is the title used for this film in English-speaking territories, while the direct translation of the French title is The Law of the Market, which perhaps sounds a little less poetic, but it has multiple meanings within the context of this film, and I think it's a richer title for an extremely rich film. I gather we're all very much fans of this one.
2: Very, very, very much at home to this um... Hayley, do you want to go first? Oh, do I want to
1: talk about my emotional <laughs> breakdown while watching this film? You, you were
0: bursting about this film before we went on air.
1: Oh God, I think I, I think it's the. The, the, the revelation of the extreme uh, reaction I had to it. You know, you, you watch a lot of films. You kind of be a filmy person. You you build yourself up as, oh, I can watch anything. Nothing really flaps my feathers or anything like that. <laughs> about <laughs> that, can replace,
2: that can replace pack-a-bong. Oh, <laughs> flap, flap my flap feathers. feathers. Flap my yeah. feathers, I like it.
1: <laughs> but there was a point about two-thirds of the way through this film where I completely broke down into just rasping sobs because this film is such an indictment on our society where working class people and people out of work are just thrown under the bus of commerce and making money, and it's all centred on this fabulous performance by Lindon who with just his marvellous crinkled hangdog face becomes this avatar through which you experience just unending humiliation and degradation in terms of your own personal dignity in trying to find work that can make you feel fulfilled and and support your family and there's just no answers in this
2: film i think one of the really key things with it um one of the other key words that i would really tie into that is scrutiny It's a film about being... um, ..that poverty means that you are scrutinised. And I've never seen a film make that more explicit than this. Yes, yes. It's made explicit through surveillance, through literal surveillance, which we see in the second half of the film. But also in the first... I find the first half, in a way, even tougher because it's an unrelenting loop of humiliating scrutiny. Um, And this film is just so... It just so powerfully communicates the, the... That poverty and this kind of, these systems that are in place to supposedly support people in need actually actively disintegrate communities. Um, It's very, very, very clear about that. A lot of the criticisms of this film that I've read um, drove me insane. Like, I was so angry reading. not even negative reviews, but kind of a, eh, reviews. We have a tendency, film critics sometimes have a tendency to have a very narrow idea of film history. Um, so a lot of people were like, oh, it's not as good as um, Two Days, One Night. It's not as good as 99 Homes. It's so that, What's the other one? There's another, uh, I, Daniel Blake. Um, was the big one that it gets? Is it Daniel Blake? I Daniel
1: Blake. I, I Daniel Blake, which is the Ken Loach that won the, the Ken Loach this year. Oh yes, yeah. Yes, so,
2: yes. so these are the films that are always kind of thrown into the mix as a point of comparison. The idea that Measure of a Man is only can only be understood in this post-GDC context is insane. I mean, it just. It just infuriated me. I went, the, the director that this reminded me the most of, even though it's tonally very different and structurally very different, is the films of Elio Petri, the Italian director who made amazing films about the working class in the nineteen seventies. One of the first films ever made was the Lumiere brothers. You know, the Lumiere workers leaving the factory. Cinema has always had an. Fascination with the working class. We look at the Soviet films during the 1920s, D.W. Griffith's Corner of Wheat in 1908. Mm-hmm. These are stories that cinema has really... There's a long history of these kind of films and this film to me, Measure of Man, I, I have the same kind of emotional attachment to it but this active, critical dehistoricizing of these kind of stories I think is really dangerous and really political. Mm-hmm. Like when you start saying this is just a film about the GDC, you are... And that's what the film does, is it denies history and it denies experience. And this whole film, it just, I mean, especially the first half of this film, there's just these never-ending banal loops of scrutiny and humiliation and judgment that this mm-hmm. character is put in. And, and his performance is is just like no other. I mean, he, I, I fell in love with him. I came to him very late. Like, I knew who he was through his relationships and stuff. But I know him from uh, Claire Denis' Bastards. Yeah. Um, that's, that's where he kind of blew me away. He yeah, was Marco, I think, in that film.
0: Yep, he did an excellent film called Welcome, which mm-hmm. was one of the first European films to really address the, the, the refugee situation and, and, and just the, the desperate need for humanity towards refugees. And he's worked with his director a few times, and I've, I've seen at least one of those other films. <laughs> he just has this face that conveys this kind of strength and, and a dignity but also incredible vulnerability failing and despair. He does all this at once and that's what his character has to do. I, yeah, I was also extremely moved by this film. and I think anybody who's ever been unemployed or worried about money and going into that system where you have to rely on, on, on being on, on Centrelink or whatever it is in other countries will, will empathise to this film in a way that's quite painful and, and, and real, but also satisfying to see it expressed in cinema, to say, I'm not the only one who was put through this bullshit. This happens all around the world. Um, and at the same time, I was also marvelling at how beautifully constructed this film was. I love naturalistic films that actually are really tightly constructed. Like, mm. there's so much film style going on here, but it's hidden. Um,
2: the soundtrack is incredible. The use of yeah.
0: silence in yeah. this film
2: and is it's, it just amazing.
0: It's riveting filmmaking. I mean, I'm, I'm worried that people listening to this might think it sounds really boring, but it's actually it's really, really engaging, especially those early scenes where you just see how he's being so Judged and like he's in job interviews, or he's you know he's seeing the bank, or he's trying to 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 sell some of his personal items, and all these people are treating this man with so much experience and and you know professionalism and background, and they're treating him like he's an idiot because he's unemployed. And I think that really speaks to the way we perceive people who are doing it hard. And the way the second half of the film reflects on this is through the surveillance shots where we are encouraged to look at people through surveillance cameras, and it takes a while for you to realise that. The people we're looking at aren't doing anything wrong this is just surveillance footage that act of looking for something bad in somebody means that you're immediately suspicious and paranoid of them and it's really powerful the way this film communicates that
2: I um it's really simple language when i when i that i resort to i think when i think about the effect that this film had on me it the experience of it's a very very different film from son of saul but i remember when i saw son of saul i had the same feeling where it was almost a a sense of awe in a very simple way this is what film can do just just that simple like film yeah, can, it's film exciting, can do, isn't it isn't it amazing that film yeah. can do this um this is
0: why we talk about it for an hour every monday night yeah. as films like this come around it's yeah. just
2: it's it's There's, not it's not it's not uplifting and it's not a it's not a buzz, it's not spectacle cinema but it's, it's just extraordinary that film can do what yeah. this
1: film does. There, there's just so many scenes in this film that you could pull out. The, the, the two scenes for me that just made this film where I was just like, oh my goodness, this is actually close to a, a masterpiece was a scene when you see Terry finally uh, get a job he's at a going away party for mm. an employee who's worked for the company for like 30 years. People are saying lovely things about her, they're singing her songs and it feels like this moment where you're like oh he's finally found a job, he's found a community, this seems like a, like a nice place and it's not even the scene after, it's the scene a couple after where he's being taken through the, 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 the surveillance aspects of his job and a, a co-worker says some random thing to him about how well you know not everyone at the firm decided to take early retirement and and, and the that the bosses are actually looking to let more people go and you realize oh my goodness there is no salvation for anyone involved in 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 employment in within this film and 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 as an extent to the greater world and at that point i was just sitting there just going full communism just yeah no it is it is about the, oh fractu- my God. The, the, the fracturing
2: of communities you know it's it's a very active breaking down of a kind yeah. of bond and, um, and, and it's ideological yeah and
1: uh, oh, eat the rich just by the end of this film I was just so and the fact that I watched it over the election weekend was just very just Yeah, everything went to I was hell in a really that. emotional
2: kind of political space as well Thomas I was thinking a lot when I was watching this I don't know this is so random but uh, Mia Madre I'm not <gasps> sure you yeah. know the film that they're making in Mia Madre yeah <laughs> That's what this reminded
0: me of. Yeah, of course. Which is of such course. a it's such yeah. a weird
2: abstract kind of point of comparison, but in in Mia Madre, there it's it's a film about um if you if you missed that show that we were talking about it, it's an Italian film where it's about the making it's, it's a woman director who's making a film about factory workers revolting. Mm-hmm. Um and that's that's what this was almost like. It was it was you know. And I kept kind of thinking about the making of this film while I was watching it. And I kind of defaulted back to me in Madre and John Turturro doing a funny dance. And
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, don't remember those jeans. <laughs> <laughs> the Measure of a Man just reminded me what I always advise people: don't ever feel bad about leaving a job or doing anything like that because your job doesn't care about you. They will. Cut you down, reduce your pay, reduce your hours, get rid of you as soon as it suits them. This is the film and, to watch and, if and, you want to quit your job. This film articulates that in a really powerful way. Oh, I hope people aren't too depressed. But oh, <laughs>
1: power to the proletariat.
0: Three triple R. A lot of the time this year we've been talking about you know people who mean a lot to us and mean a lot to the film industry who have died, and it's it sometimes feels like every other week we're announcing something very sad. So, Alex, this was your idea. Let's celebrate somebody who's kicking on in style.
2: Olivia Haviland refuses to die. <gasps> Olivia, my queen. My, our queen, our dark queen. We were talking about our favourite Olivia. I mean, Gone with the Wind is the big one. I think uh, yes, she's the last yes. living cast member. She's from... the last living
1: cast member, so she played Melanie in Gone with the Wind. She also won two Oscars, one for... T- each his own, and uh, the second one to one of my personal favourite films, *The Heiress which is I I rewatched that on her actual birthday, oh, and it was a joy. Eight eight films, I think, with our Hobart boy, Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn. Eight, eight, with eight, nine the, films. Oh, they they had a whole the thing. Robin Hood. Robin and... Hood, and and uh, *Charge of the Light Brigade*, and of course there was always the rumours that they were secretly getting it on, but she never confirmed because she was a lady. <laughs> That's elegance.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> We wish you a Our big queen. happy birthday. i am be 100 years old.
2: <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: So while the Scorsese exhibition continues at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, there is a new series of weekly screenings of Martin Scorsese's films as part of ACME's Scorsese Friday Night Cinema Programme. Coming up this Friday and the Friday after is the 1985 film, After Hours, about a New York office worker, played by Griffin Dunn, who also produced the film, who goes downtown to Soho one night to meet up with a girl he's just met, played by Rosanna Arquette. Uh, Soon he ends up in a bizarre sequence of events that prevents him from doing the one thing he ends up wanting to do, get home safely and in one piece. After Hours blends together black comedy, flashes of surrealism and anxiety. It references The Wizard of Oz and feels like, and this is, this is, these are my words, it feels like a yuppie retelling of the Odyssey crossed with Kafka's The Trial with lashings of castration-complex-style male anxiety. I really, really enjoyed revisiting this film. It, it, it is a film that tends to get overlooked as it's a bit of an anomaly in Scorsese's filmography and I loved it. How did how did you guys cope with After Hours? Well,
2: I think we're all a bit Scorsese crazy, Hayley. <laughs> I, um, this I man, the man, Marty. This, I Love think, it. was the first film that he'd done in a decade without De Niro. Yeah. Like it was quite an anonymous, no, 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 an anonymous... Lisa and it was all very,
0: all his... very last minute too. Yeah, well, it was
2: because on the back of the Last Temptation of Christ falling apart, <gasps> yes, I believe, so he... which links us to our mm. friend Mr. Gate. Uh, yes,
1: yeah, so originally, uh, straight after the King of Comedy, uh, Scorsese wanted to do the Last Temptation of Christ. He'd been he'd held on to the the book of it for like a decade, been trying to get it up, and basically the deal fell through. Oh, hello, <laughs> come, it's come on, in. A slip there um so uh, the, the deal that he'd set up with united artists fell through in the wake of heaven's gate absolutely demolishing the, the 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 studio at at the time and no one was interested in letting uh young gun directors go overseas and spend a lot of money for probably not much return so he ended up basically just taking on after hours as kind of like a cheapie to to keep, keep his wheels going and but uh, put it together throw it out there and I think it's uh, it's a really interesting entry in the Scorsese Canon it, it, it kind of slips neatly into what I call Scorsese's Purgatory films I think it's a really interesting one
2: just in terms of how it fits into we talked a lot about this when we looked at um, Alice doesn't live here anymore in um, I mean there's so much you know when you talk about Scorsese you talk about masculinity it's like a default setting Scorsese's women, these women, um, king of comedy. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that uh, Masha Sandra Bernhardt's character in that is really one of the women in this mm-hmm. film. I think there's a direct parallel. These kind of hyper caricatures of of monstrous femininity um, that that are so wonderful because it's very it is this kind of Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz type fantasy that that he's he's this kind of bland, quite banal, yuppie guy. Um, and that's how he sees these women you know he 's just mm. not exposed to women like this so it's it's we see them from his perspective as these kind of the, yeah, these kind of fantastic creatures of the
1: night. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting as well. We do see them as fantastic creatures, but you also feel like the weighting of the way Scorsese is dealing with them is very much on the side of the women. Absolutely, like the, like, like the point absolutely. the point where the film turns is where um, uh, Rosanna Arquette's character Marcy makes some really personal, quite horrific re- revelations to Griffin Dunn's character Paul, and the way he reacts to it is. Mm-hmm appalling. And that's the moment where the film turns and you realise oh, he gets thrown into this horrible situation where all he wants to do is get home and he just gets embroiled in all of these horrendous events that, that, that you know, spin further and further out of control. That happened because he was an asshole yeah, to a yeah, woman. Yeah, That's how... He's a jerk. Yeah, exactly. He's a yeah. rich jerk. Exactly. And that's the point where you realise, oh, we're not actually following a hero here. We're following an anti-hero getting his just desserts. In Purgatory, it's a thesis, guys. <laughs> yeah.
2: And, and he's in their world, is the other thing as well, in that, in that, you know, the film starts with him in an office being bored, but he's the kind of middle-class, yuppie guy. Yeah. He's
0: gone downtown to the arty precinct. He's slumming yeah. it to get yeah. laid, and, yep.
2: and he gets punished for it because he's a pig, which <laughs> is kind of... But he's a quite it's sympathetic pick. Yeah, my yeah. favourite character is... Sorry, Thomas. I was going to say, go he's excited. essentially
0: a nice guy, but a bit of a dick. And it's his, di- yeah, it's, yeah. it's his dickish moves that puts him into trouble.
2: I think two of my favourite characters in this film, and, and most of the critical work that I've read about it really overlooks them. And I think so much of the film, because they're not in it very much, but I think so much of what this film is doing hinges on it, is Cheech and Chong. <laughs> <Yeah. gasps> Cheech I'm going to in I'm going to say it. I pack a bong <laughs> for Cheech and Chong in this
1: film. I was
2: film. just waiting for it. Because, I you mean, if you're going to pack a bong for anyone... <laughs> Um, I think they act like, like a Greek chorus in this film. They're mm. in a, in uh, so they, they appear at the start and, and um Griffin Dunn from American Werewolf in London, for those of you who aren't familiar with his name, he was Jack in American Werewolf in London. Um, he he assumes that they're burglars. Mm. Um whereas in fact they are people they are they are customers of an artist. They're mm. buying art, which I just think it's just the most hilarious setup and there's there's a kind of that goes to an interesting place in the in the film's conclusion that is equally as wonderful. But I think that the Chi and Chong characters really bookend this film. Like it's it's not the, the underworld as 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 the protagonist finds it isn't solely um, female, but it's very much capital O othered. Mm. Um, in terms of sexuality and different kind of uh, racial and cultural identities, and and women and just powerful women, he's in a world that is not the it is not the business guy, White Wall bread. Street.
0: Yuppie mm. world that he knows. It's a really 1980s film, and this is smack bang in the middle of the 80s. Yeah. So yes, he is he is a yuppie with a bland, boring job, but ov- obviously he's reasonably affluent. Yeah, goes out to get laid, and he's suddenly mixing with with women and people who aren't white, and it's this yeah Kafkaesque nightmare mm. for him. And it's yeah. all, it's all very very light and, and fun in the film mm. as well. It's, it's not light; it gets quite dark and mm. surreal. You know, there's these strange coincidences, there's these strange recurring motifs, and these sense that he's getting. Drawn into the world, and yeah, it is such a great depiction of that classic male castration anxiety. And there's some really fun symbolism. Whether it's you know he literally sees graffiti of a shark biting a guy's dick. There's the, the mouse traps in one woman's apartment, which is around the bed. There's mouse traps around the bed. People, <laughs> you don't need a psychology degree <laughs> to, to, to to get the symbolism in this, and it's really fun. And yeah, uh, uh, uh,
2: there was a bit
1: of a Catherine Scorsese in there for you. <gasps> you so spotted his parents in the diner, the very first. Dynasty. Oh, I missed yeah. yeah. it. Mean,
0: I, I saw him. I saw him in the punk club. Scorsese yep. doing yep. his yep. cameo, but I'm, no, I missed his mum. Yeah, no, I,
1: I thought of you when I saw his mum. <laughs> I loved, I loved yep.
0: Scorsese's mum. But also, look, very quick shout out to Terry Gars in this film. She's <laughs>
1: extraordinary. I think uh, she's as good as Rosanna Arquette in this great. film. I think the women are uniformly yeah. also, amazing. also, I really want to point out this also contains one of my favourite. Uh, she, she's very much known for her unhinged, kooky characters, but this is a high class Catherine O'Hara, yeah. kooky, unhinged <laughs> performance. Who's the boss? She's the boss. You know
0: it. So. <laughs> and, and Linda who is also wonderful and very sexy and menacing in this film in the way that I loved it. There we go. There's an insight into my male anxiety. um, Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really... You know, once you dig below the surface, this is a really classic Scorsese film. I mean, it takes the... the, the you know, it's set in New York for mm. a start. This is his playground, but it mm. takes some of the comic absurdity that began in King of Comedy, mm. and King of Comedy is, is a film that's set, set in a tangible, recognisable world. It takes that, and it does go into surreal territory. This feels
2: like mm. a, almost like a Masha spin-off to me. Like it almost takes the character. It's, it's Masha, isn't it? Yeah, she, yeah. Sandra Bernhardt plays Masha, yeah, and so it I'm takes right. her and builds a whole film around the kind of even not her character. Not you know, obviously mm. she was quite up, uh, quite wealthy mm. in King of Comedy, but that kind of That caricature of female hysteria, Mm -hmm. um, made kind of comically monstrous in the imagination of a very dull guy. Like
1: mm. you Yeah, know, see I I partner it up with a couple of different films. Like I can't help partnering it up with the with The Last Temptation of Christ. Mm. I think that this is a very Catholic film. It's and, that, you, and, journey, and, yeah. and that journey journey yep. and, and this that is your that, that, that feel the yeah, purgatory yeah. thing and feeling like you you're having to atone like like the, the the scene for it for me is when he finally throws himself down onto the street and screams to the sky, why are you doing this to me? I'm just a word processor. <laughs> <laughs> In the words of our Lord. In the words of our Lord, <laughs> and um, and and I also pair it a lot with um, Shutter Island, which I feel like is a highly, highly, highly underrated. Yeah, Scorsese me film. Yeah. I think it, I think it might be the unra-
2: underrated mm. Scorsese film. Actually, I'm, gl- I'm mm. glad that we've had time to look at a lot of these less, uh, not lesser Scorsese films, but but the lesser, so less critically known. championed yeah, ones. Yeah, Al So we did Alice. Doesn't live here anymore. We did Casino,
0: Age of Innocence, Age of Innocence, and
2: this one, and and um, I mean, yeah, Shutter Island, and The Departed. I think is another one that doesn't really that's sort of fallen off the radar a little bit. Um, into the background, I think next to a lot of the big name Scorsese films.
0: I think there's only one Scorsese film I don't like, and that's Gangs of New York. Otherwise, I'm a fan of all of them.
1: Ah, see, I initially didn't like Gangs of, uh, Gangs of New York when it first came out, yep. and I've rewatched it recently. It's a lot better than I was more, kind of I'm anticipating. More than to revisit, go there then. Yeah. revisit. I'm not big
2: Leo Scorsese. i am oh, how dare? Yeah, no, I, I'm disappointed. No, I've,
0: I've, oh,
2: I mean, I, I honestly, I think King of Comedy and praising Alice Shutter
0: Island is, and Departed.
2: Yeah, I mean, yep. I adore Shutter yep. Island, um, but I think mm. that that's probably more because of its source material, the kind of Jacques Ternier, sure. um ninth configuration references going on in that film. It's like, it's Alex Catnip. I mean, just the aesthetics of that film is kind of made for me.
1: Um, uh, see, I, I pack a bong for Leo in Scorsese, so there you go. <laughs>
0: yeah, I love it all. I'm sure
1: he'd appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> you know he would. Not, I don't think he's unfamiliar with that. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> what do you think he's doing on those super yachts?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we better wind things note. up. Hayley, thank you so much for being on Plato's Cave with us tonight.
1: Time. It's Yay. a pleasure
0: having you back. No doubt we'll continue to, to do so whenever we can. i oh, always so happy. Uh, thank you kindly. So tonight on the show we talked about the BFG, that's on general release, through Walt Disney Studios. We also looked at The Measure of a Man, which is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through Sharmil Films, and we've just been discussing After Hours. Now this is screening this Friday night, 8th of July, and then the following Friday on the 15th of July at Acme. As part of their Scorsese Friday Night Cinema Programme, it's courtesy of Roadshow Films. Go to acme.net.au forward slash film for details. That's about it. My name's Thomas. I've been here as well as with Hayley, with Alex, Alec You. Hi. Alex Helen Nicholas and Hayley Inch. I'm Thomas Cordwell. We're out of here. We'll have more films to talk about next week. Good night.